I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. It was a crappy day today, wasn't it? It was awful. I know we start every episode with the weather. But it's the weather. It's the season to complain about the weather constantly. It, it was awful. It's April, what is it? April 4th as we're recording this. And it was just gray. And I looked out the window and there was like this sleet coming down. And and then it settled down into rain. And ugh. we had a lot of rain. And then every once in a while, you looked out, and there were like those giant wet snowflakes just yeah. falling with the rain. And I wore a blazer today, three quarter sleeve, and I was just like freezing in my office all day long. It was so, it, it was, was unfortunate. Bad yeah, was... bad wardrobe choice. <laughs> so today we're going to be looking at the Great Lakes. Well, we're going to be looking at one of the Great Lakes. It's, I think, kind of a first for us. We've talked about a lot of, about a lot of things happening around the Great Lakes, but I don't think we've yet focused on a mystery of one of the Great Lakes itself. A maritime mystery. A, a maritime mystery. They are. <laughs> you'd think we would have done that by now, but no, no, we've done other things. So we're going to be looking at some stuff about Lake Ontario. And uh, just to be clear, we're not going to be providing a blow-by-blow account of every mystery, disaster, or mysterious disaster that occurred. Rather, we're going to be, in typical Great Lakes lore fashion, interrogating some stories and delving into the facts behind them as best we can. So if we don't mention your favorite Lake Ontario mystery, it's not because we don't know about it. It's because we had to make some choices so we're not here for the next five hours. So... Some of the stories we're going to be looking at today involve disappearing ships, and I think there's a phantom fleet. So vanishing ships, ghost ships, why do they seem to be more fascinating and popular, these these sinkings of ships? Why is this more evocative and out in the sort of legendary culture than train wrecks or car crashes? Uh, I think people romanticize maritime things so much, and especially in the Great Lakes region with the Great Lakes. I mean, in some ways, I think it harkens back to like a bygone era, you know, or something right. like that. But but also, I mean, there are still, you know, huge cargo ships that are going through the Great Lakes today. And I just think it's something special about this region. You know, most most areas don't have these giant inland seas <laughs> surrounding them. Um, I, I have a little story that I wanted to throw in here. I was um, I did a year at the University of Kentucky. And um, while I was down there, someone said something and I was like, well, yeah, like you haven't ever visited an old lighthouse. And they looked at me like, (laughs) no, no, I have not. And then it hit me that like, I mean, obviously, I know that most states (laughs) don't have lighthouses all over their shoreline, but or or have a shoreline. Um, (laughs) But it was like one of those like you had to be taken out of your element to realize how special your element was. (laughs) And so I think because of that, shipwrecks on the Great Lakes really they they hold a special place in in the minds of, of Great Lakes region residents. Even beyond that you know, ocean going folklore, like on the salt seas, boy, that sounds like an old timey way to say something <laughs> on the salt sea. Um, <laughs> you hear that phrase in folk songs a lot, but um, there, there's a lot of folk songs about sailing ships and a lot of them have supernatural overtones to them. And then you've got other folk songs that are, are basically work songs on sailing ships so there's there's a a shanties shanties yeah and (laughs) shanties are super popular with the young crowd right now i don't care about the young crowd i'm just saying like we got to get our shanty plug in man i've been listening to shanties when the young crowd were not were the preschool crowd so now you're a grumpy old man (laughs) i'm not a grumpy old man i'm just a shanty guy from way back and and i don't like being trivialized by people on youtube (laughs) so trivializing you you don't see as much folklore about cars or folk songs about cars or trains. There's like a lot of legends and lore that surround seafaring because it was such a dangerous thing to do for so long. And people would set sail and they'd be gone for months and months and years at a time. So you had all these, your your superstitions and the things that you did and whatever. Of all the mysteries of the seas, one of the most popular of modern times is the Bermuda Triangle. And other areas that have become known as zones of mystery. 
The Bermuda Triangle was first widely discussed by a writer named Vincent Gaddis in a 1964 article for Argosy magazine. Argosy was one of these 1960s adventure magazines that had all sorts of stories about interesting, mysterious things like the Bermuda Triangle. But it was popularized more widely by Charles Berlitz's 1974 book about it. And then there was a 1977 episode of the series In Search Of and a really, really bad 1978 Mexican-Italian horror movie, which if you haven't seen, I completely urge you to see. So in the 1970s, this isn't the place to talk about it, but there's a massive paranormal boom in the 1970s. It is it is the paranormal decade for a number of reasons. And the Bermuda Triangle caught the attention of the public. This area in the Atlantic where ships vanished, where planes vanished, where mysterious things happened. So it shouldn't be a surprise that other regions with large bodies of water and lots of transportation on them might try to get in on the action. And Jay Gurley did just that in 1977. He published a book called The Great Lakes Triangle, and it is described on the cover as a chilling chronicle of unexplained disasters even more bizarre than those of the Bermuda Triangle. Um, it doesn't end with an exclamation point, but we both thought it seemed appropriate that it should. <laughs> when, when you're that uh, yes. inflammatory, you need, you need the proper punctuation to accompany it. Um, but between the blurb and the title, it's pretty clear that Gurley's book is trading on the 1970s popularity of the Bermuda Triangle. This isn't a criticism of ours. It's very smart marketing to, <laughs> to tie it in. Um, and so Gurley's book catalogs a vast number of happenings from across the entire Great Lakes region, which isn't really triangular. <laughs> you just really wanted to get get that shape in Anything there. can be a triangle if you make it big enough. You, <laughs> right. you can close anything in a triangle. Yeah, and Wisconsin can be a, a mitten. No, we can't. <laughs> we love you, Wisconsin. There are, however, um, other more triangular zones within the Great Lakes region, which researchers have investigated. There is a Lake Michigan Triangle, for example, um, and maybe we'll cover that <laughs> at some point down the road. Um, but there's also a triangular area known as the Marysburg Vortex, which is part of Lake Ontario near the, um, the northeastern end of the lake. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So this is really the first time where we're really hitting New York as it is th- as a great welcome Lake New State. York <laughs> welcome and uh, and Ontario Ontario is yes. sort of being brought into the fold for the first yeah. time thank hello neighbors over there <laughs> across the uh, across the Straits of Detroit then in 1980 a few years after Gurley's book Hugh Cochran published the extravagantly titled Gateway to Oblivion. While Gurley spends just a brief amount of time on Lake Ontario-based incidents, Cochrane devotes nearly his entire book to the Marysburg Vortex, a triangular area whose three points are Mexico Bay, which is near Oswego, New York, Wolf Island, which sits at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River, and a place called Point Petra in Prince Edward County, Ontario. Hugh Cochrane was, we think was, I couldn't find an obituary. He might oh. still be on the uh, on the scene. <laughs> A free, he was a freelance writer from Ontario who, according to the biography on his book jacket, always the most credible source for information about any writer, <laughs> has, quote, years of experience with UFOs and psychic phenomenon, end quote, Ooh. and has collected a great deal of evidence about the Marysburg Vortex, a term he coined. We weren't able to find much information about Cochrane, leading us to wonder if perhaps he did his freelance writing under a different name. Now, what I did find is that he, or someone from Toronto with the same name, did write a letter to the editor of Popular Mechanics in 1996 to complain about the metric system and to reassure (laughs) Americans that they were correct to stick to the old imperial (laughs) measurements. I... I choose to believe that was the guy who wrote this book. I That's just so. what I choose to believe. So in Gateway to Oblivion, Cochran argues that the Marysburg Vortex is a weird, if not deadly, anomaly that none of the other Great Lakes possesses. He claims that the weirdness here, quote, outranks anything found in the Bermuda Triangle, the Hoodoo Sea, or another so-called zone of mystery anywhere in the world. Why? Because, and Cochrane's description is pretty extreme, so it's worth quoting in full, 
It appears to be the focus of an unknown, invisible vortex of forces that not only erupts intermittently throughout the waters, but at times spews out an invisible cloak (laughs) to encompass and cause disasters (laughs) in other parts of the Great Lakes, the regions surrounding them, and even the skies above. (laughs) So this vortex spews out its anomalous forces. It does. It spews them out. To cause accidents and chaos everywhere <laughs> it makes it makes sense to me it's like um, the gateways of hell under buffy the vampire slayers high school without question now <laughs> i've got a question for you and um i don't want to put you on the spot but i am truly ignorant and maybe you aren't as ignorant <clears throat> as i am what is the hoodoo see no idea okay um answers on a postcard folks what is the hoodoo see send us your <laughs> did you look it up before no. you put it in the outline oh no i I, I choose to remain ignorant of the hoodoo. See, f- for one reason, I have a feeling that the word hoodoo is some sort of term we're not supposed to use anymore. Well, yes, that's uh, why. <laughs> no, I'm I'm looking this up right now. <laughs> it's a nickname for the Bermuda Triangle. So clearly a very offensive term. <laughs> I don't think Cochran knows that the hoodoo see and the Bermuda Triangle are the same thing. That's hilarious. Unless, unless it's one of those like, because the way he uses parentheses, the Bermuda Triangle or not parentheses, commas. Like like he's saying this is another name for it, which we definitely should not be using in the 21st century. I I don't know. I don't read it like that. No, I, I, I mean re- I don't I don't know. I mean he could be a poor you read the book, so it could be no, no, I read the book and I think he's confused. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go with we'll, that. We'll, we'll find other <laughs> examples of his confusion and error as as we go. <laughs> Mystery solved. Yes. All right, so in order to prove or illustrate the power of the forces inside of the Marysburg Vortex, Cochrane brings in a number of disasters from the eastern end of Lake Ontario. Gateway to Oblivion is detail-rich, but it is very clearly committed to anomalous explanations. It's these forces, man. (laughs) (laughs) While it's a comprehensive look at the mysteries of Lake Ontario, we had to wonder how mysterious are these mysteries? So we figured that it's our responsibility as the host of Great Lakes Lore (laughs) to compare Cochran's work uh, with other accounts of the events he uses to prove his point about the Marysburg Vortex. So is Cochran presenting these events, often disastrous or tragic, in a full and fair way, or is he manipulating the narratives? We're going to read these disasters to you, well, Aaron will, and then uh, I will provide the, like, newspaper other accounts whatever and and you listeners will get both sides of the story <laughs> it's a real Mulder scully moment here as, as <laughs> i declare cochran's sometimes vague and loopy account and, and sam says the person who was there said blah <laughs> so okay let's start off in 1883 with a ship called the quinlan a ship carrying a load of coal it left port in oswego new york Its destination was the North Shore of Lake Ontario. That was all it was given, the North Shore. Its course took it straight through the middle of the triangle comprising the so-called Marysburg Vortex. According to Cochrane, those who witnessed the violent events that befell the ship and survived to tell the tale (laughs) revealed that the eastern end of the lake was inhabited by unknown forces, forces that still inhabit the region today. Soon after setting out, the Quinlan ran into some freezing fog, and frost began to form all over the ship. Then snow began, and Cochran called the snowfall strange, but he doesn't explain what's strange about it. Meteorological events are always strange. (laughs) It's snow on the Great Lakes in the autumn, right? This is... This is the least strange thing I can think of in a lot of ways. So the snow is piling up. The crew is struggling to to clear the decks and waves begin battering the ship and the compass stops working. The ship's crew were sailing blind, struggling to keep the ship afloat. And Cochran explained that the ship was now under control of other forces which refused to release their grip. The ship crashed into the shore at Marysburg the mast snapping, the hull being smashed open. Onlookers on the shore tried to rescue as many members of the crew as possible, but only a few survived. Cochran relates that the survivors claimed the ship had been gripped by, in their words, some odd attraction. He provides no citation for this quotation. Well, that rhymes. It does. I didn't mean it to. (laughs) 
their history poems. All right, so now let's look at what folks at the time said. Uh, the website Maritime History of the Great Lakes presents transcripts of newspaper clippings covering the wreck of the Quinlan, more properly called the Eliza Quinlan. First of all, the wreck was in December of 1882, not the autumn of 1883, which explains a little some problems that we had initially while doing research. <laughs> the official report from the Department of Marine and Fisheries Statement of Loss stated, Stranded December 4th, 1882 on Poplar Bar, Prince Edward County, during snow and fog, and became a total loss. Property loss, $1,500. The earliest reports claimed that all hands were saved. The most thorough account is from a book called Canvas and Steam on Quint Waters by Willis Metcalf. The book contains a retelling from the grandson of the captain of the Eliza Quinlan. He wrote, It froze hard that night, and it was late the next morning when the tugs broke the ice to tow the vessel out into the lake. By that time, it had become very foggy, and within a short time, it started to snow and blow from the southwest. About 2.30 o'clock in the afternoon, the schooner ran aground on Poplar Bar, three miles west of Point Travers Light. It was supposed that her compass, through some attraction, led her off course. The Quinlan was stranded on the rocks for years, with several attempts being made to make her seaworthy again. Those attempts failed, and she eventually succumbed to the elements. So there in that description, we have a possible source of the attraction line uh, that, that Cochrane wrote, although it's missing the word strange, <laughs> and comes from the captain's grandson rather than sort of this visage he made of the bedraggled sailors that were hauled off the freezing lake. <laughs> Granted, this is less evocative, but far more <laughs> um, what's what's not respectable, but uh, citation worthy, I guess. <laughs> um, we found no indication that lives were lost when the Quinlan ran aground. Compendiums of shipping wrecks we looked at specified deaths and none were listed with the Quinlan. As boring as footnotes are, we would have appreciated Cochrane providing some, at least, to support the story that he shared, because it certainly doesn't seem to be <laughs> the one that we found when we turned to the original sources. <laughs> no, and something that I just realized as you were as you were saying that is the the line, the strange attraction line, or the attraction line. Cochrane makes it sound like they were referring to the ship was drawn by some strange yeah. attraction, and. The, the actual quotation makes it clear that no, the, the compass was right. subject to the attraction, not a force drawing the whole ship off course. It was just they didn't know where to go, right. which is a different sort of thing. Entirely. Right. Yeah. And so listeners, remember this note about the compass, because this is all going to come back um, later on in the story. <laughs> so now we'll turn to the wreck of the Bavaria from 1889. All right, so the Bavaria. In May 1889, the Bavaria failed to return to port. Another ship, the Armenia, set out in search of her. They found the Bavaria run aground on Galu Island, a small shoal, but there was no response to the rescue ship's hails and no one was on deck. The only sound that came from the strangely silent ship, Cochrane reports, was the uneasy creaking of her timbers as the long swells from the lake nudged her to and fro, swaying her masts like giant crosses. According to Cochrane, a dark frown appeared on the face of the Armenia's captain. As <laughs> How he would he know some... this? <laughs> I know! I know! Um, uh, it's, Creative nonfiction at its worst. Right? I mean, I, I, I can't hate it too much, but um, yeah, so Captain with the Dark Frown... He and some sailors board the Bavaria to investigate. The crew had vanished without trace. And this wasn't the only mystery. The ship was seaworthy once freed from the shoal. Why had the crew abandoned the ship? Where had they gone? Clues on the ship. Fresh-baked bread just out of the oven, a small repair job left unfinished, indicated that whatever happened had occurred very quickly. He's making it sound like they were like, you know, raptured or something. It's like everything was left and everybody just, you know, went. So the Armenia returned to port and reported what they'd found. And Cochrane claims that while people speculated about what had happened to the crew, it also raised questions about what had happened to others who had vanished on Lake Ontario. It raised, he said, questions of other dark mysteries that have plagued this region of the continent since earliest times. Ooh. 
Many had tried to solve the enigma of Lake Ontario, but they all failed. Some investigators, supposedly, claimed that an invisible, unnatural, and bizarre force had driven the crew insane, causing them to seek escape, possibly even suicide. He provides no source for that. Nothing made sense. The lifeboat was missing, so the crew had fled. But why? There had been a storm, but if they thought they were in danger of sinking, why were they baking bread or doing non-critical repairs? Other stories, Cochran says, would surface. A ship captain and a lighthouse keeper each saw a single lifeboat with two men in it that did not respond to any attempts to help. The two men sat as if hypnotized, staring blankly. When last seen, they were sitting immobile as the oars they were pulling drew them to their doom. Finally, Cochran says, in over a hundred years, no one has come any closer to finding a solution to this mystery. Well, I'll tell you, the authors of the Kingston News on May 29th, 1889, had several theories, <laughs> far more practical than Cochran's as to, as to what happened to oh, we'll see about the Bavaria. <laughs> so, so this newspaper article, like I said, May 29th, 1889, theorizes what happened to the crew of eight um, that were on the ship and, and sort of plays out what had happened. So the morning of May 28th, the Bavaria was in a tow line being led by the Calvin. And in order, it was the Calvin, then the Valencia, Valencia. It's spelled with a T, which makes you want to say Valencia, but Valentia. I would say Valentia. I guess. I guess. It's weird. <laughs> Bavaria and then the Norway. The Norway was the last ship in the in the line. And according to the newspaper article, the sea was running tremendously high and tons of water were thrown on deck. So the Valentia's line broke first from the Calvin and then the Bavaria broke from that. The Norway had to cut loose from the Bavaria to save itself. And actually, the Bavaria does end up ramming into the Norway. The next morning, the other three ships made it in, but the Bavaria wasn't there. The Norway was in terrible shape. So this gives some idea as to the state of the lake at this time. Was it in terrible shape because it got rammed by the Bavaria? I mean, I think it's a combination of the two. They talked about everything that was sort of all all askew and, you know, whatever. They, the articles that I read made it sound like it wasn't a horrible ramming, you know, like, like, you know, breaking sides and <laughs> things like that. But things knocked around a little bit. Well, not a little bit, but boat equivalent of a fender bender. Yeah, kind of, I guess. The Armenia went out to assist and helped tow in the Norway. It also found the Bavaria on Galu Island. One hypothesis that seems to make the most sense is that Captain Marshall of, of the Bavaria tried to move the lumber it was carrying to help ride out the storm and was washed overboard in the process. The article noted that his papers were found in his cabin and a captain generally wouldn't abandon ship without his papers, at least this guy, um, they said. <laughs> and he also always had an axe like mounted in a certain place in his cabin and that axe was gone, which led them to believe that he could have taken that and was, you know, trying to do his thing on deck when he was washed, washed over. The crew then, lacking their captain, decided to leave in the ship's boat, which was a bad idea. Um, there was a report from a lighthouse um, that said that the lighthouse men uh, saw a yawl of men overturned. So no two people sitting <laughs> hypnotized in a ghost <laughs> boat. Many in the article that they talked to, it was a really long article with different pieces to the story, said that the ship's men didn't need to leave because the ship was full of white pine and would have been fine, which aligns with, you know, Cochrane, what Cochrane wrote, saying that, you know, that the ship was in fine shape. It didn't need to be abandoned. But perhaps these men, you know, they didn't know what to do. Their captain was gone. Maybe they weren't as as seasoned of, <laughs> of shipmen and didn't know what to do. So a question from a landlubber. <laughs> what, what about white pine means the ship would have been fine? Just the weight of it wasn't bad enough to tip it over? That's just what they said. I assume, I mean, I think I mean, wood floats, right? That's, that's what I was so. thinking. More, more as opposed to like a hold full of coal, coal, right? Or something right like that. Yeah. Okay, that's that's yeah. okay. That that's makes a guess. Sense. I didn't look into it. That's that's what I. That's what my I'm, mind told me. But okay, me too. I, I thought it was a buoyancy issue. Yeah. <laughs> so. An article that I found um, from the same day, May 29th, eighteen ninety nine, from the Oswego Daily Palladium, said that the Bavaria had. 
fallen into the trough of the seas and remained there. So the skipper of the Calvin, remember this was the head of the tow line, said that nobody on the Bavaria made any effort to raise sail or turn the craft about. As the seas rolled across the deck, he said he could see that the Bavaria was starting to take on water. So sensing the vessel was in some kind of trouble, the Calvin turned around and drew abreast of the Bavaria, where the captain hailed the boat, expecting Captain John Marshall and his crew to help attach a new hawser. But there was no response. The drifting schooner appeared deserted. So already at this point, everybody's gone. The Calvin stood by, blowing its whistle until the Bavaria drifted too close to Galu Island and eventually grounded. Um, then there was one other... Um, sort of odd note that I found. It was in an excerpt from, well, there was an excerpt from a June 1889 New York Times article that recounts that a witness reported seeing Captain Marshall clinging to a yawl. But as I mentioned, the Kingston article says that Marshall wouldn't have left the ship. He was a better seaman and wouldn't have left his papers behind. The website that contained this article also had an odd note. It said that someone had claimed to have found in a note in a bottle that said, Captain of Bavaria, help, the ship is sinking. All have been washed overboard but me. I expect my turn will come next. About 100 yards off Galoop, which is spelled wrong, <laughs> Island, Lake Ontario. And that didn't really make sense to me. Um, this was not part of the New York Times article itself. But when you listen to all these accounts, everything happened so fast that it doesn't really seem that there would have been any time to throw a message in a bottle no. <laughs> asking for help. I mean, um, there's another message in a bottle you'll hear about soon that seems a little more realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's the thing about a message in a bottle as a rescue thing. It's like, <laughs> it's I'm going to drown quick. soon. If you find this bottle, what? what yeah. What are you yeah. going to do when you find the bottle? Hope he's still alive? Right. I mean, who's going to find this bottle? <laughs> I, I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, since since you just went through all this and you were doing the research on, on this part, I, I wonder if you'll agree. Cochran simplified the heck out of this story. He he did not talk about the tow line. He did not talk about <laughs> the conditions, really. He did not. He was just like, well, there was a ship and it, eh, out of nowhere, they just decided to jump overboard and no one knows why. It's like, <laughs> no, it was a multi-car pileup on a lake. <laughs> right. And it got chaotic. And when you don't know what's going on and you don't have a leader there to direct to direct you and you might not be an experienced sailor, maybe you panic and abandon ship in a dumb situation or a bad situation. Yeah. I mean, I can see how maybe if you didn't know being in the smaller boat might seem like you had the better chance than like, oh my gosh, I think the ship's going to go under, you know, or something yeah. like that. So, so, so you do that hoping that you'll, you know, reach someplace. Um, maybe, maybe they were hoping to reach Galu Island or something with, with, with the small boat that, that they were on. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it took me reading through this a couple of times to true, to like understand all of the points of this long story. And, and I've even simplified it <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, because you don't need that many details to understand that it's complicated and messy. <laughs> <laughs> and poorly reported by Cochrane. Yes, yes. In 1900, three ships, the Picton, the Minas, and the Acacia, all left port. The Minas and the Acacia had the Picton in view when suddenly the Picton vanished. For two hours, the ships searched for the Picton, but the ship and crew were gone. A few days later, a young boy found a message in a bottle. It was signed by the captain of the Picton. The note explained that he had lashed himself to his son so they would be found together. The mystery of this is that if the ship had vanished almost instantly, as the other ships reported, the captain would not have had the chance to write such a note and maybe not even a chance to lash himself to his son. Perhaps he was trapped inside his ship underwater with a small amount of air and time to compose the message, Cochrane says. And this this one's messy. So I'm going to give you articles out of chronological order because this is the order that the newspapers.com search machine showed them to me. Um, but you, you'll you get the idea that there are conflicting reports about this story in particular, but still more detail than what Cochran shared. The Democrat and Chronicle of Rochester, New York, reported on July 27th, 1900, of the disappearance of the coal schooner Picton. 
Captain Savage of another coal schooner, the Annie Minnis, said that prior to leaving, he and Captain John Sidney of the Picton said they would race across the lake to their destination. A little a little Lake Ontario drag race. Zoom. <laughs> um, so uh, the newspaper says the vessels left the harbor early in the morning of July 6th, just a few hours before the bursting of a furious storm over the lake. Uh, Savage reportedly saw the Picton ahead of it at about 1030. And then a few minutes later, when he looked back in the direction, it was gone. Savage sailed over in that direction, but there was no evidence of it. He believes that in the strong gale that was blowing, the vessel opened a seam and was carried to its doom by the cargo of the coal. Coal's heavier. Coal sinks. (laughs) It's physics. The article says that this is the first bit of evidence shed on the mystery of the disaster and the crew of five all perished. Next, an article from the Buffalo Evening News of July 3rd said the wreck happened on the 3rd, not the 6th, and also said that there was a crew of six that perished and listed all of their names. A later article from mid-August 1900 in that same Democrat and Chronicle from Rochester, New York, confirms the discovery of a note from the captain, but it also says the ship sank on June 29th with seven men on board. <laughs> <laughs> and this note read, John Sidley, not, what did, what did the first article say? Sidney. So now Sydney. he's Sidley. John Sidley, captain of schooner Picton, in great peril. Expect to sink at any minute. Goodbye to all friends. Finder, please report this to my wife. Now, this seems more of a legitimate kind. Like, this is like, I just watched The Patriot last night and Mel Gibson is like, Harry, give this note to my to my children. Like, if I die in the battle. Like, but still, yeah. still... If disaster is that fast <laughs> that the other ship just, I, I don't know. But even at the time, they were reporting that there was a letter. So that's so, but, but not that he was lashed to his son. No, there was somewhere else that I did see that. I thought um, we have one more article. So maybe it's in that or maybe okay. or maybe Cochran made that up. I don't remember. <laughs> Another article from the Democrat and Chronicle on July 2nd. So now we're going back further in time, which truly would be before the the sinking happened right i've confused myself now (laughs) the timeline is strange it is strange it keeps changing there's a slightly different story and this came from the captain of the acacia so this is the first time that we're hearing about the acacia in these newspaper reports so captain byron bogard claims to have been ahead of the picton and saw it flounder along the south shore of lake ontario Quote, when the p- captain of the Acacia last saw the Picton, she was struggling hard in the seas with only a small piece of canvas left. The schooner finally disappeared from view. Captain Bogard believes she went to the bottom. She is owned by Captain Sibley of Belleville, whose wife and children are said to have been on board. It was just his son on board in the other articles. So we have a few more things changing. A lot changes in the story of the Picton. Okay, so we got Sydney, Sidley, and Sibley. Yep. Right? Yep. We've got, I've been lashed to my son in mm-hmm. the note. I've not been lashed to anybody mm-hmm. in the other note, but please tell my wife. And then third, we have, his wife was on board. So His son was on board. Right. The, for the, sure. The son, but the son was on board for sure. The wife. In, yeah. in, in every case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in every case. Okay. I didn't notice the son in. I don't think I noted it in the first newspaper okay, article was, because I didn't know it was going to be important because they didn't make it important in the first article. And uh, I wanted to share the developments as they came, like take you through my weird research. And then I was going crazy. I'm trying to track this in my brain. So, I, I mean, I'm I'm imagining a situation where where on the in, in the third scenario is is the correct one. And they just didn't report that he he lashed himself to his son, but his wife was there. I think he had a second secret family and he meant tell my other wife (laughs) that I have um, lashed myself to my son and you'll doubtless find our uh, bloated corpses on a beach somewhere. God. Sturgeon stew. I made that up. Isn't that great? That is is great. (laughs) But either way, the waters were rough. The Annie Menace saw it then didn't see it. It was quick. It was rapid. It was down. But I don't understand how there can be different accounts of what day it happened. Right. That's the really weird one to me. I was like, is this the same ship? I'm not really sure. But it is. What I'm wondering is, did Cochran 
have access to all of these stories and then just pick the elements of each Ooh, one maybe. you thought would make a good one. It's like, mm-hmm. I've got all of these sources. I will find like the best fit line through all of these weird, contradictory narratives, mm-hmm. which isn't the worst approach. No. But I think out of out of all of them, I think this is this is the one that that just demonstrates how quickly things can go bad when you're on a body of water like this. Yeah. And the other thing that I think this highlights is that news reporting wasn't stellar back then. No. I mean, so so when you're trying to do this kind of research, you have to be critical of what you're reading. And obviously it's easy when, you know, all of the newspaper articles say the same thing. But in this case, when you're getting these conflicting accounts, because maybe you're talking to a person a month later in the case of the one article that came out mid-August, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, back then. What was it? The beginning of the, the beginning of July sometime. And he picks a day. Um, but news travels slowly and it's just it's a different world. And so you can't like account that the people writing this article like saw the event and were reporting it just as it was happening the same way we hear news today. So those are some accounts of some of the shipwrecks and and mysteries related to those mysteries and quotes that uh, that Cochrane relates. When we come back, we're going to look at some aircraft losses and some weird stuff and some explanations from Cochrane and from the world of science about what might account for some of the strange things going on in the Marysburg vortex. Our next episode is going to be ghosts, some ghosts in Minnesota, <laughs> some <laughs> to be determined ghosts in Minnesota. We've, we've got a few things on the radar. We just got to pin it down. So yeah, narrow down the ghosts. Yeah. We'll, we'll have them audition. <laughs> Are you a good enough ghost? Are you, You'll yeah. have to see. So what do you do when you haunt? Do you, <laughs> what's your backstory? Was there right. a murder involved? You know? Is it tragic? Is it romantic? You know? You can follow us on social media. We are at Great Lakes Lore on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And we'd love you to comment and ask questions and all of that stuff. Great Lakes Lore is also on Patreon. We are under Chizo Media. It's a combined Patreon account with uh, Great Lakes Lore and The Saucer Life, Aaron's other podcast. And um, there we have bonus episodes, footage from field trips, research blog posts, and all kinds of extra fun goodies for those who support us. So thanks to everybody um, who has done so already. And, um, you know, if it's within your means and you want more of us in your life um, you can check out the tiers that we have available for you there so it's time for our our book discussion of the month and it's april it's a new month um sam do we have a theme what are you reading yeah so the the topic for this month is um a book recommended by a fellow legender um so somebody else who listens to astonishing legends because if you forgot this is the astonishing legends sort of book challenge for the year and um i am reading Ghostland. It has a subtitle i don't have it in front of me um by colin dickey and so it's looking at sort of america's um fascination with interest whatever in in ghosts and hauntings throughout the country and i'm a i don't know 25 30 pages in and there's some interesting stuff and some stuff that's annoying me so (laughs) i will share more on that when i can see if it's actually something that will like trend throughout the book (laughs) well sam is the only astonishing legends person i i know at least that i know of (laughs) and i was gonna read the neil gaiman um Norse mythology. Norse mythology book, and I haven't started it yet. I, I think I am going. I am going to do that. Mm. Okay, so let's get back to the Marysburg vortex. So aircraft losses—that's a big Bermuda Triangle thing, and it's sort of a thing in the Marysburg vortex, Lake Ontario Triangle as well. Gourley's book on the Great Lakes Triangle has relatively few cases concerning Lake Ontario. The handful of cases he does discuss are very short descriptions of aircraft mysteries. For example, there's the case of Flight 18112. 
a CF-101 jet of the Canadian Air Force, which should have been called the Royal Canadian Air Force, but we'll let him slide this time. It happened on August 23rd, 1954. And the pilot was flying over the northern shore of Lake Ontario, and he bailed out. He reported that the aircraft had become impossible to control. And Gurley says that the cause of this is officially secret. The file is secret, but he has seen the secret file. He doesn't explain how he did this. And according to Gurley, the secret file states that the scientists who studied the case couldn't determine what caused the issue. This, he says, is amazing because flight investigators are very good detectives who always solve things, which is a kind of weak explanation. And most of the cases Gurley cites are like this. A plane crashes or disappears, and the cause is undetermined or simply not made public, which is usually the case in um, incidents where military flights go down. And that undetermined or non-public nature leaves a lot of room for speculation on what might have happened. And a lot of times he doesn't have explanations. He just has sort of clearly something did happen because they aren't telling us what did happen. So it must be something they don't want us to know about. It's very indistinct, very vague. In his book, Cochran focused much less on aircraft disappearances than he did on ship-based mysteries and disasters. But he did cover a few interesting aircraft disappearances. While Gurley focused on the fairly dry details of the cases, Cochran has a more lurid approach which I feel like you can expect given what what we've discussed about the shipwrecks. He likes to put the word accident in sarcasm quotes. And while he finds the same cases with the same undetermined findings as Gurley does, Cochran says things like this. While some aircraft in this region encounter invisible objects or forces, others appear to drop into a well and are sucked straight down in a vertical plunge into the earth, which is just an overwrought way of saying plane crashes in different ways and more flourishing language. (laughs) Uh, Many of the plane crash or disappearance stories are very similar. And honestly, the way he writes them, they're just not as interesting as the shipwreck stories. And there's not a lot of official accounts we can look at that would say much different. We've got a plane that goes down and the cause is undetermined or instrument failure or pilot disorientation or things like that. And there's really no differences in the narrative between what Cochran or Gurley says and what the official record says. It's just that in the case of aircraft, because there's less documentation and things are strange, they're able to sort of read more into it. It's sort of why I I feel that the shipwreck stuff is more interesting. And and, I mean, when you think about it, the the airplane stuff comes much later when like Instruments, reporting, news, you know, all of that is much different than late 19th century, turn of the century of newspaper reporting as well. So it seems like that would that would make a difference into how you're putting a story together. Absolutely. But there's some stuff that's weirder than shipwrecks that Cochran gets into. He also devotes several chapters to other phenomenon that he tenuously connects to the weirdness of the Marysburg vortex. There's a story of Samuel de Champlain drawing a map of the St. Lawrence River that contained two large islands that were not there when later French explorers arrived decades later. Cochrane urges exploration of the riverbed to determine whether these islands might have been submerged due to some strange unknown event. He also wonders whether these missing islands could be connected to local native legends of the city of Sagana, a mysterious place where men flew in the sky like birds. Now, other references to Sagana are few and far between. A book from 1937 called Mining in Ontario reports that Jacques Cartier reported finding gold from that city, but the authors acknowledge that the claims place a heavy tax on our credulity. Amazingly, to us anyway, is that Cochrane does not mention this legends of Mishapashu, a water spirit that became known as the Mazinaw Lake Monster. Native peoples would offer tobacco to the monster before setting out across the lake, lest the creature whack their canoes with his tail. Sightings of something have been reported as late as the 20th century. And it's weird that he doesn't talk about this because he, even though that lake is a ways from Lake Ontario, Cochrane brings it up because there are some very old petroglyphs near the lake. And Cochrane wonders if they could be connected to the lost city of Sagana. So I I think it's just a huge missed opportunity to not bring the supposed lake monster into this story as well. Maybe he thought that was too 
far out or something. I don't know. Cochrane also explores the connection between strangeness on the eastern end of Lake Ontario and psychic or spiritual abilities and energies. He discusses dowsers who have supposedly used their abilities to sense gravitational anomalies that scientists have also found through more conventional means. He also brings in a startling array of religious or spiritual events or personalities as part of the supposed effects of the Marysburg Triangle region. He notes that Joseph Smith had his encounter that led to the creation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints just 15 miles from the shores of Lake Ontario. Could there have been a connection? <laughs> he also brings up the story of the Fox sisters who were in the area and played a crucial role in popularizing spiritualism in the 19th century America. The only relevance they have to the wider story is geographical proximity. So it's clear that he's taking anything that could smack of odd or supernatural or paranormal or whatever that happened anywhere near here and just threw it into the mixed bag of, <laughs> of of these mysteries around Lake Ontario. He also throws in a number of other things, brief references to ghost ships and ghost fleets. And he even somehow brings in the cattle mutilation phenomenon that got a great deal of press attention in the 1970s. Although he doesn't connect this directly to the events of the Marysburg Triangle. In fact, the cattle mutilations he talks about are in New Mexico. Honestly, I think he just wanted to talk about cattle mutilations for a couple of pages. He's like, this is my one shot at writing my paranormal book, and I'm going to throw out all my opinions about everything. <laughs> it, it, it does seem like that. And he does mention a number of UFO cases, going back to reports of mysterious lights in colonial times and, and during the early European settlement of Lake Ontario, and stretches all the way forward to contemporary accounts of UFOs that were investigated by various UFO organizations and researchers. As with all other aspects of the book, there are a lot of examples, and to catalog them here would be kind of tedious. They're almost entirely nocturnal lights. There's no literal structured flying saucer craft or anything like that. Now, I'm a UFO guy, but I have to acknowledge that reading paragraph after paragraph of descriptions of an orange light, a red light, a glowing blue light gets old. The most interesting UFO-related thing Cochrane mentions is a theory presented by the revered, among paranormal types, author and scientist Ivan T. Sanderson in his book Invisible Residence. Sanderson theorized that the number of UFO sightings near bodies of water, including reports of unidentified submerged objects, or USOs, could indicate that there were UFO bases below the surface of lakes and oceans. And Lake Ontario has been, for a while now, the rumored site of an underwater UFO base. There are a lot of websites that discuss this, but we have a better source, Commander X. So who was Commander X? He is a former military and intelligence operative privy to the hidden truth behind the world's most perplexing mysteries. He has risked his life many times to bring the truth to the public. But not really. <laughs> it's just a pen name used by a number of UFO conspiracy New Age writers from the 1980s up to the past couple of years. It was spearheaded and published by the late Timothy Green Beckley, a longtime researcher, writer, and publisher of some of the most outlandish and entertaining material on the fringe scene. In the 1990s book Underground Alien Bases, there is a chapter on Canadian UFO bases. Commander X covers a number of UFOs seen over Lake Ontario, with many being witnessed as rising up out of the lake or diving beneath the water. This means, of course, that there must be a UFO base under the lake. In fact, Commander X says, if there isn't an underground UFO base on Lake Ontario, I'll eat my green beret. Another interesting story related by Commander X involves a man named Ernest who lived in Toronto. In 1979, Ernest discovered a vast cave network underneath the city. He discovered it accidentally when he entered a small opening off Parliament Street while looking for a kitten. Inside the cave, he saw orange and red slanted eyes. They belonged to a creature that was long and thin, almost like a monkey, three feet long, large teeth, weighing maybe 30 pounds with slate gray fur. It hissed, go away, go away, <laughs> to Ernest, who did so quickly. According to... <clears throat> several oriental masters oh. the creature ernest saw may have been it was 1990 may have been the sacred tibetan kadoma the guardian of the gateways to the cities of shambhala they are very positive people but will destroy negative trespassers now, and why were they in lake ontario 
I'm going to say that right now. Oh, sorry. (laughs) What Ernest found might have been connected to a vast underground city. This city, built and since abandoned by the ancient L race, contained massive magnetic machines that still exist underneath Toronto. These machines have caused various anomalous activities in the surface world. Pictures on walls swing around. Objects move around untouched. Brakes and vital parts on cars and motorcycles fail and create fatal accidents. According to Commander X's sources, the machinery is under the corner of Girard and Church Streets, an intersection that had the highest rate of accidents in Toronto. Supposedly. So it's under Lake Ontario because it extends, it's this part of the city that extends under Toronto and, and throughout the whole region. So there's an entrance in Toronto to this giant underground city. Why is the city with the Tibetan monkey god underneath Canada and a Great Lake? Oh, because all of these things are connected. There's a worldwide network of underground tunnels leading to mysterious places like Agartha and the lost city of Shambhala. You can get to them from a number of places. You can go to Mount Shasta in California and get there through there too. But this is closer for if we want to do a Patreon field trip to um, an opening off Parliament Street uh, where a kitten might have gone back in 1979. That's like four hours away. Um, I'm sure. Th- and they have high speed underground tunnel cars that will take you to Tibet and Mount Shasta. Is this somebody's fever dream? What is this? <laughs> you think that's bad? Wait till I tell you about the Dero that could also be behind this. It's just a Monday. This is a lot. We don't have time for the We don't have time for the Dero now, but um you you might you might hear me tell Sam about the Dero at a later at a later time. So what's really going on here? Because I I'm a little bit skeptical of the ancient city of Shambhala. Um, Sam I'm skeptical thinks- of all of this. And I like weird stuff, but this is this is too ship sink, man. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. If, if you're not down with the ancient city of Shambhala, well, I'm not down with Shambhala, but something's going on at Mount Shasta in California. I'll tell you that right now. But maybe there's a more realistic explanation. What do we think? Yeah, so let's dive into Cochrane's explanation, and then I'm going to provide a very rational explanation that I found. <laughs> so Cochrane has some ideas. His most sensible idea is that uh, there was a 1950 joint scientific effort by the American and Canadian governments to investigate magnetic anomalies in the area. And as Cochrane describes it, the researchers discovered areas of reduced binding in the atmosphere near the shore of the lake. These were pillar-like columns up to a thousand feet across and reaching thousands of feet above the surface. The forces binding matter together were disrupted on the molecular level. Even more troubling, these columns were not stationary. They moved, making such information impossible to put on navigational charts. Cochrane claims that this disturbing atmospheric effect that ripped apart matter should have launched further investigations, but no such investigations happened. And he puts sort of a a conspiratorial spin on this. Why didn't they look into this further? He's vague on the details about this study, but from what we could find, he's probably referring to something called Project Magnet, which I think Sam is going to talk about in a bit. And um, he's getting a lot of the details about Project Magnet kind of wrong. The main theory he puts forth is that these occurrences and these zones of mystery, not just Marysburg, but Bermuda Triangle and a dozen others around the world, are places where the boundaries between dimensions are thinner and more permeable than most. This may allow objects we identify as UFOs to appear, may allow for the manifestation of strange mental abilities, like starting the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or lead to encounters with beings from outside our plane of reality, or affect the physical world in violent ways, or cause ships to crash or simply disappear. Cochrane is, of course, not the first to talk about these ideas, and he does credit John Keel with being one of the researchers who explored these things. The strange energies released by these areas might, he argues, represent a solution to the wide variety of phenomenon he describes in his book. He also relates these things to topics like telluric earth energies and ley lines, the idea that there are these streams of power that are part of the earth that can have strange effects on what we consider the normal physical process. All right. 
Now check this out. According to a thorough post I found on a blog, Ottawa Rewind. I, I have a problem saying Ottawa Rewind. <laughs> There's something with the W's. <laughs> my, my problem is that in Canada, they pronounce Ottawa, Ottawa. Ottawa Rewind. It's just like there's something with the W's that <laughs> Yeah, it is a little weird. According to a thorough post on the blog Ottawa Rewind. Got it. <laughs> um, in 1950, the Canadian government started Project Magnet to investigate why ships seem to go wonky in this area of, of Lake Ontario. They investigated the Earth's magnetic fields, increased technology and work by groups like NOAA and the National Geophysical Data Center revealed a circular depression with a ridge surrounding it, now referred to as the Charity Shoal structure. So under the lake, at the bottom of the lake, there is a circular depression with a ridge around it. Um, a further study of it in the 21st century dates it as being over 400 million years old. The ring has a high magnetic field and the center of it has a magnetic low. So obviously that's going to throw compasses, navigational tools, whatever. It's going to make them go weird. <laughs> um, Dr. Richard Hurd, the retired curator of the National Meteorite Collection of the Geological Survey of Canada, says that this could have been caused by a collision, a, a meteor collision, and it, it could have brought up molten material at the ridge. Additionally, meteors are generally of two types. They can be stony or they can be made of iron nickel, which obviously would have magnetic properties to it. And this is very similar to the Behringer crater in Nevada. And so there's a very simple geological explanation as to why there is this area at the bottom of Lake Ontario that causes a compass to go weird or causes other strange things to happen. And uh, although the the ship anomalies have decreased as, you know, GPS and things have gotten better and rely on satellites and not um, magnets and things, um, there are still occasionally ships that get lost in the area. As recently as 2013, a stray sailboat was found drifting around in the area without a crew and they were never Found. And, and so I think this just goes to show that there are very explainable reasons why things can be weird um, once we have the technology and the tools to figure them out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the Project Magnet thing, it, it's did, did anything in your reading that you did that mentioned Project Magnet indicate zones of reduced binding where matter was flying apart? No. Me neither. I, I, did, <laughs> I did some looking because I was trying to, we were independently discovering Project Magnet without each other knowing <laughs> we were discovering Project Magnet. And all the stuff I found was was about this. It was about um, navigation um, mm -hmm. anomalies and also radio communication sure, yeah. screw ups. And, and the U.S. actually launched launched its own Project Magnet just after Canada um, started its own. And, um, and then the article that I had just then followed sort of the Canadian developments mm -hmm. because obviously it was a Canadian blog. But they're like, oh, yeah, then the Americans started looking into it, too. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that's like, I mean, a cool and very fascinating reason why. You know, you combine that with just like the danger of being on the Great Lakes. <laughs> um, and that just explains a lot, I think. Yeah. And I, I think I think people don't realize just how just how dangerous those lakes are, because like mm -hmm. you said, they are inland seas. There, there are even <laughs> even the even the small ones like Lake Ontario are absolutely massive mm -hmm. and it's um especially in an age of sail um in an age before when, when your navigational system was a magnet and mm -hmm. you had no way to know what kind of meteorite was under mm -hmm. the ocean that could uh, affect that yes it would be unexplained you know <laughs> why that happened yeah not to mention that aircraft go down all the time especially back in the 40s and 50s, especially a lot of these aircraft cases are small, single-engine planes with one person in them. Mm -hmm. I mean, and when you think about like the fact that in the in, as late as the 1970s, a storm took out the Edmund Fitzgerald like in Lake Superior in, in a way that we still don't have a concrete answer for. I, I don't, it's just not, it's just not that weird. <laughs> 
actually, that leads me to a question I have, a, a concluding okay. question I have. How do we feel about the exploitation of actual maritime or aviation tragedies as somehow paranormal or anomalous when evidence fails to point to anything actually anonymous? And the reason I ask that now and is because both of these books, um, Gurley's book and Cochrane's book, brought up the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh. Did not suggest anything anomalous had happened, just that it was very sudden. And it felt very much like, well, it's 1977 slash 1980. Gotta mention this ship. This just happened. I've got no way to connect it to anything weird, which is supposedly <laughs> what I'm trying to do. But it's like, oh, Edmund Fitzgerald, that was sad. Remember the song? It, it, so <laughs> how do we feel about this? I, th- I don't think exploitation is, is the wrong word here. But no, I sort don't of like, either. oh, people died. Well, was it a vortex? You know, things like that. I don't know. I I feel weird about it. Yeah, I don't like it um, because I think it takes away from, I mean, the the true nature and danger that people put themselves in as they are doing their work, have done their work for centuries along the Great Lakes. Say, I mean, just just passing it off as weird matter combusting or like um, uh, portals or the thinning of the divide between dimensions or or whatever it might be that, that a person is leaning to, I think that takes so much away from the richness of the human experience and the the tragedy and i mean it, it truly looking at all of the things that cochran's book brings up it really feels like like i i said earlier this is my one shot to make my weird paranormal book and so i'm going to throw in everything that i possibly can without care as to what really happened here and it's only when we as his, like well, not just as historians, but when we as people know what truly happened in the past, that we can appreciate it and appreciate the lives of these people who who passed away tragically and did the work that they did and stuff. I don't know. Or survived and were reported yeah. as being dead by yeah. Cochrane in yes. one of his books. <laughs> yes, that's true. The one ship, yes. Yeah. So like we're able to poke holes in some of Cochrane's stories with a Google search or two. But the internet gets a lot of criticism for making it easy to spread dubious stories. But mm. how has it enabled critical thinkers to thoroughly check stories like these? I, I think that's sort of the flip side that we, the positive side of the internet that we um, we 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 have. Because it's easy to say, Cochran, you dope. But you know, how hard would it have been to? get hands on some of these sources that we had um books that were long out of print that catalog shipwrecks newspapers, newspapers. <laughs> and you know i i have a feeling this is just a supposition on my part i have a feeling that 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 cochran sort of got the deal for this book and they were like um this triangle stuff is big right now we need it in, we need it in three months you know mm-hmm. so there's you know which i mean doesn't make it right but it's it's amazing how many resources we have now that we kind of take for granted yeah i mean at at like public history conferences that i've gone to you know we have conversations about how you know whether it's students or just researchers or whatever um when they're using the internet, they need to learn to evaluate sources and understand the kind of source that they're looking at. But the thing that we always come back to in these conversations is that, but the internet lets us do so much. Like yeah. as museums and libraries and all of these repositories are digitizing their collections and making sources and pictures of artifacts and all of these things available to to, to people who want to use them for educational purposes or just personal enrichment or you know what whatever it might be um all of the knowledge is at our fingertips and sure i mean cochran what year did he write this book i, I forget uh, 80 um, yeah i mean so he didn't have that <laughs> um that that level of access to these things and so the research wouldn't have been 
as easy and we don't know what his background is. So we don't know like even even what could have compelled him to write the book. <laughs> no, he was a freelance journalist with a deep interest in UFOs and the paranormal. So, you know, he, he's he's coming at this from, you know, an, an angle of I've got my ideas about weird stuff and I'm not going to look know. at any other sources. <laughs> right. Right. So one last question. What's more damaging, the blatantly outrageous stories that come out of the Commander X genre of paranormal writing or books like Cochrane's that are inaccurate or incomplete, but based on sort of solid historical foundations, things that sound history-ish, history-ish? Yeah, I think the that thing that sense. looks closest to credible but isn't credible is more dangerous than the thing that is very obviously not credible. I mean, I'm I've never heard of these weird things <laughs> that you brought up in this episode. Um some of them, the Commander X things and Shambhala and whatever. Um but anybody could pick up a book and think like, "Oh, look, this is researched." And not understand that good research has footnotes um, and and talks about the sources that they use. And so it would be easy for someone to think, well, this is a credible thing. It's in a book as opposed to like, oh, this weird wackadoo posted in this chat room. Hey, that Commander <laughs> X thing was a book. That was a book. Oh, with, well, with that's, pages. that's true. That's yeah. true, unfortunately. So I, I, I agree with you generally, but in to Cochran's credit, I'm going to say he did something that a lot of books like his don't do. There's an index. Okay. Which, which is, <laughs> look, don't discount how awesome it is for books to have. Indexes. Oh no, I love a good it, index. No, an index is amazing. I agree. Very, very helpful. And so I did, wrote so my did, thesis with an index practically. <laughs> I will say that having done indexes for a number of books, it is the most soul sucking, tedious, horrible thing on earth to compile an index. I, I hated it, but I don't hate the Marysburg vortex and the stories that uh, the stories that come out of it. And um, even the, the real explanations that we found, I thought were interesting and thought provoking and, and, you know, fun, fascinating stories of, of what things were like sailing ships across Lake Ontario. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it provided a really rich look into the maritime history of one of the great lakes that I don't actually know a lot about. Because Michigan doesn't touch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget about that one out there. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. I think it does. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. The Lake Ontario Triangle was written and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.